Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. As we continue, as we have been, all of those of you who are here this morning that haven't been in this class before, <clears throat> we've been studying through the book of Matthew, now in the Sermon on the Mount, and more specifically, the model prayer. And uh, we are finally at verse 12. And it says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now we began looking at this verse last week and we said that the most essential, most blessed, most difficult thing that God ever did was provide man with forgiveness of sin. Uh, it's the greatest need of the human heart. Sin has a twofold effect, one future, one present. The future effect is that it damns men forever. The present effect is that it robs men of the fullness of life by bringing to bear upon his conscience an unrelieved and unrelenting guilt. So then sin is unquestionably the major problem for which there is a need for a solution in the life of man. And you'll notice in verse 12 that the word forgive is mentioned twice. In verse 14, forgive is mentioned twice. In verse six, uh, 15, forgive is mentioned twice. So six times it's mentioned in these verses. So we need, so we see that the thrust and the theme of Jesus' words in this closing section of the model prayer is the forgiveness of sins. And we saw last week that there are five different words used in scripture for sin. But the one, the word that Jesus uses here, uh, which is translated debt, is used only here and in Romans 4.4 as a noun. <clears throat> but its verb form is used 35 times in Scripture. And the verb form is very instructive for us because it means to owe a debt, to be obligated. <clears throat> and most of the time that it's used, it refers not to a money debt, but to a moral debt. It's only used five times in Scripture to refer to a money debt. The other 30 times, it's used to refer to a moral debt. So the idea is that sin is a debt. When you sin, you owe to God a consequence for your sin. You owe that debt. You violated his holiness, and you owe him for that. Uh, then, then we started looking at four points about this verse, and the first one is the problem. And the problem is that sin separates man from God. Therefore, that is man's greatest problem. It makes him guilty. It brings judgment. It's pretty basic. It's the, the moral, spiritual disease for which man has no cure. Now, that's the human dilemma. Man is a sinner. God is holy. Therefore, sinful man cannot on his own have a relationship with God. And then we looked at the second point, which is that because man's greatest problem is sin his greatest need is forgiveness and so god is has provided forgiveness on the basis of christ's death god is a holy god scripture says he will by no means clear the guilty every man and woman on earth stands guilty before god and in his holy righteous justice he must punish sin but god is also an infinitely merciful loving and forgiving God, so he has made the provision for forgiveness by pouring out his righteous judgment 
on sin upon his own son. Christ took upon himself the sin of those for whom God had chosen before time in eternity past and died in their place. Forgiveness then is offered by God on the basis of Christ's death. And then we come, and this is where we stopped last week, so we'll pick up here, and this is the plea, and it's the third point to understand as we go through this verse, is that confession of sin is necessary to receive the forgiveness from God. Uh, the forgiveness is available. The penalty has been paid. The satisfaction has been accomplished. It's only a matter of receiving the gift, and basic to that reception is the confession of sin. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 21, that his ministry was to testify to both Jews and Gentiles of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there must then be confession of sin. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that those who are confessing their sins are the ones giving evidence that they are being forgiven. In other words, confession of sin is necessary uh, is, is a manifestation that is necessary for forgiveness. It's part and parcel of that. When you come to God, you come as a sinner. No one ever receives salvation who isn't repentant about their sin. Uh, we saw that when we studied the Beatitudes back in chapter 5. Uh, Jesus said that if you want to enter his kingdom, you must come acknowledging that you are a beggar in your spirit. You're absolutely destitute with no resources available to you and in, in the midst of your beggarly sinfulness you mourn over your sin you're meek before a holy god you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you plead for his mercy and on that basis god received you so then basic to receiving god's forgiveness is the confession of sin and god is eager and anxious to forgive the one who confesses if we confess he's faithful and righteous to keep on cleansing us from all sin there's a fourth principle, and this one confuses people on this verse, and we'll call it the prerequisite. The prerequisite. And that is that forgiving one another is an essential part of receiving forgiveness for ourselves. Now, very often when people read verses 14 and 15, which are not part of the prayer but are explanatory comments, people get confused and or upset. They get confused because it looks like forgiveness from God requires that we forgive someone else and they assume then that people have to forgive others in order to get saved. But that is a misunderstanding of the whole concept in verses 14 and 15. Now I'm not going to answer that question now but I promise that by the time we finish it with this we will have answered it. Okay. So our problem with sin can be dealt with because there is forgiveness. We must recognize the problem and then seek the forgiveness. A Christian who says he doesn't sin is in a desperate situation because he doesn't, hasn't seen the solution. He doesn't seek the solution. Uh, the churches that come out of the holiness tradition, uh, which includes the Church of the Nazarene, uh, the Church of God of Anderson, Indiana, uh, the Salvation Army, uh, and the Wesleyan Church teach that a Christian can reach a certain level in his life where he doesn't sin anymore. Uh, that isn't true. Uh, what they do is redefine sin. 
uh, so that it only includes actions but not attitudes. Uh, so they will continue to sin and they won't seek forgiveness and they lose the meaning of an intimate uh, fellowship relationship with God. And I have known people who were raised in those churches who struggled a great deal with this. Uh, because the spirit within them was convicting them of attitudinal sins. But their pastors were telling them that unless they acted on their attitude, it wasn't anything to be concerned about. Yes? Well, one of the Wesley brothers, okay. not the other. Okay. And I always get it confused. I think it's John Wesley. Uh, Charles was the hymn writer, right? He, he was solid. It was... John, I think, who was the... He felt like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a doctrine of perfectionism that they teach. Um, I, we, there was a, I, I had a case, I know of the case I'm thinking of, uh, we had someone who attended this uh, church years ago uh, who had come out of that background and uh, uh, came in and was in this class for years and... Uh, uh, struggled with that until over time the Lord, they were instructed in the Word, the Holy Spirit instructed their hearts, and uh, they now, they've moved away, long since moved away, uh, but has very accurate understanding of sin in the life of a believer uh, now. And uh, uh, so thankfully that's the case. Uh, but so how is it possible that God can forgive us and how does that forgiveness work? Well, as we said, it's possible because of the death of Christ. As we said already, on the basis of Christ's death, forgiveness is available because the price is paid. Now, there are two aspects of forgiveness. Uh, the first is judicial forgiveness. Uh, judicial forgiveness is the full, complete, positional forgiveness granted by God as the moral judge of the universe. And it is and by it, our sins, past, present, and future, are totally, completely, forever forgiven. We are justified, that is, declared righteous eternally. Uh, that happens when you're saved. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, at that moment, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, and although you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you are instantly declared righteous in Christ. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. God is the judge of the universe, drops the gavel of his divine sovereignty, and declares you to be righteous in Christ. That is an absolute positional truth which is as eternal as God is eternal. It is inviolable. It is unchangeable. It is forever. The moment you put your faith in Christ, God's righteousness is imputed to you. It is granted to you. It's credited to your account. It's eternal and God is satisfied. That is settled. And that's why Romans 8.35 says, Who will separate us from the love of God, of Christ? That's why Romans 8.33 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's settled. It involves God taking away our sin, blotting it out, and forgetting our sin. It's judicially settled for good. So then, why, if we are believers who have had all of our sins forgiven forever and have been declared righteous, why are we saying, forgive us our debts? Why are we asking God for forgiveness? 
If all of that's a settled matter, what's the point of praying that kind of prayer? Well, the answer is that we are talking about a second kind of forgiveness, which we will, which I, I think I will call parental forgiveness. Uh, maybe you can come up with a better word than parental, but since the prayer begins with the words, Our Father, uh, it makes sense to me to refer to it as parental forgiveness. Uh, now, we're not dealing here with God as a righteous judge, but with God as a loving Father. Uh, even though we have been judicially forgiven, and that is settled eternally, never changes, we still sin, don't we? And when we sin, something happens in our relationship with God. That relationship doesn't end, but something is lost in the intimacy of it. When my children were young, if they sinned against me by disobeying me, my relationship with them didn't end. Uh, they were still my children. I was still their father. And they're is a certain degree of forgiveness in my heart that's automatic because they're my children. But something in that relationship is broken and causes a loss of intimacy until they said, Daddy, I'm sorry. And then the intimacy was restored. You know, I've been married, happily married to Marcia for over 45 years. And believe it or not, there have been times during those 45 years when I've done things to sin against her. Um, either with angry words or unkind words or thoughtless actions. Now, those sins on my part didn't end our marriage relationship. And by the grace of God, she's forgiven me of far more of those than I've ever had to forgive her. Uh, but when those times take place, there is something lost in the intimacy of our relationship until I ask for her forgiveness. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. This is not an unbeliever praying for salvation. We're not talking about that. We're talking here about the forgiveness that gives believers the fullness of joy and intimacy with God. It is all a, that the relationship can be. That's what he's talking about. Let me illustrate this to you from Psalm 51. Let's look at that. Psalm 51. Now keep in mind that David is a redeemed believer. He's a man after God's own heart. His faith has been counted as righteous like Abraham's was. And it was imputed to David's account. He believed God. He loved God. He trusted God. The righteousness of Christ, which is yet in the future, had already been imputed to his account by his faith. He was a regenerated, redeemed man, but he fell into sin. Terrible sin. He committed adultery, and then he committed murder. And had he been anyone other than the king, he would have probably lost his life. But he was something other than the law, something above the law. And even though the sins were heinous, he was spared because of his position. Now, I want you to notice the nature of his prayer, because this is the prayer that comes out of his guilt-ridden, blood-stained heart as he reflects on his sin. And I want you to see this first of all. Verse 14. Deliver me 
from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. So David affirms his salvation. He cries out to God, whose presence is there, whose spirit is there, whose salvation is still his. I believe David is truly redeemed. But even in affirming that God's judicial forgiveness was there for him, David can't help but feel the loss of intimacy in his relationship with God. And that's what he means when he cries out in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Verse 7. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You see, judicial forgiveness and parental forgiveness are so different. David was saved, but there was something between he and God that made him lose the meaning of that salvation. And that's why he says in verse 8, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. He wanted the joy back. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then he caps it off in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And here's the point. Judicial forgiveness takes care of the fact of salvation. Parental forgiveness takes care of the joy of salvation. I can be forgiven, but if I'm sinful and not confessing and unrepentant in that sinfulness, I forfeit the joy of the fullness of that relationship. That's the issue. Let's look at John 13 for a couple of minutes. John 13. Here in this chapter, Jesus is speaking of his love for his disciples in spite of their waywardness and sinfulness, in spite of the fact that they were sitting around arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. They were self-centered, selfish, egotistical, indifferent to Christ, unconcerned about his pending death. They're arguing and they're proud. And in the midst of it all, Jesus takes off his outer garment, puts a towel around his waist and starts to wash their feet humiliating to him and to them because they should have done it for him. He should not have needed to do it for them. And in verse 6, we see that he comes to Peter. And Peter asks, Lord, do you wash my feet? And the Lord says, you don't understand what I'm doing now. Later on, you'll understand. And Peter's response in verse 8 is to say to Jesus, never shall you wash my feet. If you see that statement in the Greek, Peter basically says, never, ever. In fact, it isn't even possible that you will wash my feet. I will not allow this, Lord. I believe Peter's convicted about his sin. He's just been arguing with the other disciples about who is the greatest in the kingdom. And now he realizes he's been selfish and self-centered and insensitive to Christ. And he knows that he ought to be the one washing Jesus' feet. So he isn't going to allow Jesus to wash his. Look at Jesus' answer at the end of verse 8. 
If I do not wash you, you have no part in me, with me. And he takes the whole physical scene and turns it into a tremendous spiritual truth. He says, Peter, if you want to really know what it is to fellowship with me, and if you want to know what it is to be one with me, if you want to know the fullness of a relationship, you'd better let me wash you. And notice Peter's response in verse 9. Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. In other words, wash all of me. But Jesus says to him in verse 10, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. He says, Peter, I only want to wash your feet. I'm only interested in your feet because there's a spiritual truth here that I want you to see. You're all sitting around this table sinning, arguing with one another, bragging about how great you are. You're already clean except for one of you. All of you are clean except one. One of you is not redeemed, but the rest of you are already clean because you have already been redeemed. You've already been made righteous by faith. You've already become my children. I'm, I'm not talking about bathing you all over again. After all, you only get to be made righteous how many times? You don't need that again. What I'm interested in is keeping the dirt off your feet. Now, in those days, there were public baths that people would go to in the morning when they arose, and they bathed their entire body. And then they started out for the day. Now, they all wore sandals, and the roads would be muddy or dusty, depending on the weather. And because people would haul produce on carts drawn by oxen or donkeys, and there were shepherds driving flocks of sheep and goats to the local pastures or to the market, you had a lot of animal manure on those roads too. And so every time you went to someone's house or place of business or the temple, it would be necessary for you to wash your feet just as a matter of propriety. After all, it would be rather rude to traipse sheep manure into someone's home or place of business. And who wants to eat while everyone else has the aroma of that on their feet? So it was customary for the lowest ranking slave in the house to wash the feet of the guest when they entered the house. And so Jesus is giving Peter a very great spiritual truth. He's saying to him, you already had judicial forgiveness. You had your spiritual bath when you believed. All that's necessary for me to do to keep the fullness of our relationship open is to wash your feet. And that's parental forgiveness. And so as we daily walk through the world, we collect the mud and dirt of the world. Those are the sins we commit, and as we confess them, they're washed. And as we are confessing 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and righteous to continuously forgive us our sins and to continually cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful truth. He is simply saying that once you've been cleansed, bathed in the saving blood of Jesus Christ, you've received judicial forgiveness. That doesn't have to be done again. 
but parental forgiveness is something that goes on every single day as we keep the fullness of our communion with Christ open. Positional purging needs no repetition, but practical purging has to be repeated every day. Listen, when you pray, you'd better pray in accordance with Matthew 6. At some point in your prayers, after you have acknowledged that his name is holy and expressed a desire for his kingdom to come and his will to be done, and after you've acknowledged that God is the source of your daily physical sustenance, you need to face the fact that your, your feet are dirty with sin. And you need to acknowledge the fact that as long as they're dirty and you're not confessing and not repenting of that sin, there is a loss in the fullness of joy and the intimacy of communion that you can have with God. Believers need to open their heart daily for that forgiveness that keeps their spiritual feet clean. Do you remember what Nathan told David after David repented? 2 Samuel 12, 13. The Lord has taken away your sin. What a relief that was for David. He committed the terrible sins of adultery and murder, and as the king from a human earthly perspective, he was untouchable. He could do whatever he wished, but the Lord severely disciplined him. And when Nathan announced that discipline to David, David realized just how greatly he had sinned, and he immediately repented. And when he wrote Psalm 51, which tells us the story of David's repentance that we looked at. So you've got judicial forgiveness as a believer, but you also want to have parental forgiveness. So what's the message in this petition? Forgive us our debts. It is simply a plea that we experience the moment-by-moment moment cleansing that comes when we acknowledge our sin to the Lord. And what should thrill us is that God is eager to forgive. It was Nehemiah who said, You're a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Micah 7.18 Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity, and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. You say, but if I go back to him every day and I keep saying, Lord, I did this again, and Lord, I have this problem again. I mean, it's like it never ends. You know what? He doesn't get sick of you. <laughs> because he delights in unchanging love. Mercy is an act of his nature. that It gives him glory, and he always does that which magnifies his glory. God loves to forgive, and there is no way that you will ever reach the end of his forgiveness. You see, his forgiveness is infinite, just like everything else about him. You're never going to reach the end of it. You can come back as many times as you want. It will never diminish his love. Never. He'll forgive as often as you come. Now, there is always someone who comes along and says, Oh, Bruce, 
if you teach that God will always forgive, then people will just go out and deliberately do all kinds of sin because they know that God will forgive them. Well, I seriously doubt whether those people know Christ at all. Uh, because if I recognize the magnitude of my sin and realize that God has forgiven all of it, and that he loves me so much that no matter how many times I come back and ask his forgiveness, he's eager and anxious to do it. That kind of love retards me from sinning rather than encouraging me to sin. I don't want to abuse his love with more sin. <clears throat> how many of you know who Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse was? Several of you. Great pastor. Uh, he told a great story to illustrate this. He was once talking to a college professor who said he couldn't comprehend God's love for sinners. And so Dr. Barnhouse told the professor a story about a couple he had known. Uh, the husband had lived a life of great sin and immorality, but had finally been converted and eventually came to marry a fine Christian woman. And he had confided to her the nature of his past life in just a few words. Uh, and as he told her these things, the wife had taken his head in her hands and she drew him to her shoulder and she kissed him gently. And she said, John, I want you to understand something very plainly. I know my Bible well. And therefore, I know the subtlety of sin and the vices of sin that work in the human heart. I know you are a thoroughly converted man, John, but I know that you still have a sin nature and that you're not yet as fully instructed in the ways of God as you will be. The devil will do all he can to wreck your Christian life. He will see to it that temptations of every kind are put in your way and the day might come, John, please God, that it never does, but it might come that you succumb to temptation and fall into sin. And John, immediately, the devil will tell you that it's no use trying, that you might as well continue in your way of sin. And above all, he's going to tell you not to tell me because it will hurt me. But John, I want you to know that there is a home for you in my arms. When I married you, I married your old nature as well as your new nature. And I want you to know there's full pardon and full forgiveness in advance of any evil that ever comes into your life. When Barnhouse finished the story, the college professor lifted up his eyes reverently and said, my God, if anything could ever keep a man straight, that kind of forgiving love in advance would sure do it. That's exactly and precisely the way God perceives his relationship to us. Now, how do we receive this parental forgiveness from our Heavenly Father? We receive his forgiveness by confession of sin. You, know, you can know about sin. You can know about forgiveness. But if you don't confess your sin you'll never receive his parental forgiveness in order to restore your relationship to him. As long as you harbor your sin and never confess it, never repent of it, don't turn from it, 
and agree with him about it, you'll never be free to know the joy that he wants you to know because the barrier's there and it shatters the intimacy of fellowship. And so we must confess our sin. We must open our heart and admit our sin. That's tough sometimes, isn't it? Have you ever had a, been in an argument with someone, you know, your wife, a friend, a relative, and you each go off apart from one another, and the Holy Spirit prompts your heart about your sin, but instead of immediately saying, Lord, you're right, I'm in sin, I repent to you and beg your forgiveness, and now I need to go and admit such to this other person and ask for his or her forgiveness. Instead of doing that, what do you do? You begin to rationalize what you did. Well, if only she hadn't done such and such. Well, he's 90% to blame for this problem. I'm only 10% at fault, so he needs to apologize first. So I understand that confessing our sin is often hard because we don't want to admit that we're wrong. We blame shift. We make excuses. Whatever we can do to avoid dealing with our sin against God and others. But as long as we don't, we forfeit joy. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Our spiritual prosperity, folks, is at stake. That's why he says you'd better say, forgive us our debts. Confession of sin is vital. David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah wasn't the only time that David had to repent of a great sin. On another occasion, David decided to take a census to determine his military power. He was trusting in his own military might rather than the Lord for protection. <coughs> and after that census was completed, we're told in 2 Samuel 24.10, David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. In Daniel 9.20, Daniel tells us, I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin. In Luke 5, 8, Peter says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. The Apostle Paul says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance with Christ, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Folks, confessing sin isn't easy but it's necessary to appropriate the attended joy that comes with parental forgiveness. Don't conceal your sin. Confess your sin. John Stott writes, quote, One of the surest antidotes to the process of moral hardening is the disciplined practice of uncovering our sins of thought and outlook as well as word and deed and the repentant forsaking of them, end quote. You see, if you don't do that, it's going to harden you. And if you stay too long in that condition, your Heavenly Father will discipline you. He will do whatever it takes 
to break his children of their unrepentant sinful status. His discipline may start off with a loss of joy and a loss of relationship with himself and with other believers. But if you don't repent, I can promise you his discipline will get stronger and stronger, even including physical illness, physical sickness. And for the believer who continues in unrepentant sin, it may even result in him taking their life rather than having them continue to bring dishonor to his name. I believe I've seen the Lord work this way in the lives of three people during my lifetime involved with ministry here at Lakeside. One man almost died of inexplicable renal failure until he repented, and then just as quickly he was miraculously healed, and doctors couldn't explain what happened. The other two men died. So confess your sin. Repent of it. Turn from it. But recognize that it will be a battle that will never end until you're in heaven. Which ought to make you pray, come Lord Jesus. <laughs> well, now we come to the second half of this verse, as well as Jesus' explanatory postscript in verses 14 and 15. This is the final point of the four points we said there is in verse 12. We said there's a problem, sin, provision is forgiveness, plea, confession. Now we come to the prerequisite, which is forgiving others. Let's begin by reading verse 12 again, which says, Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And in verses 14 and 15 says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. In the early days of America, John Wesley was serving as a missionary to the colonies and was having a terrible time with General James Oglethorpe, the founder of the colony of Georgia. Oglethorpe was known for his pride and unbending nature, and in one particularly prideful moment, he stated, I never forgive. To which Wesley replied, then I hope, sir, that you never sin. <laughs> Wesley knew that if we pride ourselves on never forgetting a wrong, if we make an unforgiving spirit of virtue, we cannot be forgiven. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, said, a man can as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. And Charles Spurgeon stated, unless you've forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. And here's what C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, No part of his teaching is clearer, and there are no exceptions to it. He doesn't say that we are to forgive other people's sins provided they're not too frightful or provided there are extenuating circumstances or anything of that sort. We are to forgive them all, however spiteful, however mean, however often they're repeated. If we don't, we shall be forgiven none of our own, end quote. Now, if you think those are strong words, let me read you from Kent Hughes' excellent commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says about these verses. Quote, Let me extend the principle even further. 
If we will not forgive, we are not Christians. This is a frightening statement, but it is true. For when God's grace comes into our hearts, it makes us forgiving. We demonstrate whether we have been forgiven by whether or not we will forgive. So if I refuse to forgive, there's only one reason. I am outside grace and I myself am unforgiven. Those are hard words, but they are graciously hard words, especially needed to be heard by the religious person who can state all the answers, who attends church, who leads an outwardly moral life, but who holds a death grip on his grudges. He will not forgive his relatives for some infraction. He has no desire to pardon his former business associate. He nourishes hatreds, cherishes animosities, revels in malice. Such people had better take an honest inventory of their lives and see if they really know Jesus." End quote. So a persistent pattern of refusing to forgive others indicates a lack of regeneration of one's heart. But true Christians can also fall into the sin of being unforgiven. So we need to know why it is so important that we forgive others. Now there are several reasons why we're to forgive another, and I'm going to give you a list that you might want to write down so you'll remember them. First of all, we are to forgive one another because it is the character of righteousness. It is the character of righteousness. And so, therefore, it's a characteristic of a faithful Christian life. Christians are characterized as those who forgive. Back in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 43, we saw that the Jewish rabbis taught, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you'll be sons of your Father who's in heaven. In other words, loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you is tantamount to forgiving them, and that's a characteristic that manifests that you're a son of God. It is a characteristic of saints to forgive. After all, we're the forgiven, aren't we? It's only when you have a real understanding of the gravity and greatness of your own sin that you will realize <clears throat> how much you have been forgiven. And then you will have a, be more forgiving toward others. When you as a Christian fail to forgive someone else, you set yourself up as a higher court than God because God infinitely forgives and that's a form of idolatry because when you do that because you have set yourself up as God and you're worshiping yourself you say but that person committed a great crime against my family I can never forgive him or her well then your problem is not with me your problem is with scripture what did God say in Romans 12, 19 to 21? Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Feed, uh, for in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Those are the actions of one who is 
forgiven that enemy, recognizing that God is the one who has promised to repay that person in the future. It isn't your place to seek revenge or to refuse to forgive. When you refuse to forgive, you're being overcome by evil. Forgiveness is the fruit of righteous character. Second, we are to forgive one another because it follows the example of Christ. It follows the example of Christ. 1 John 2.6 says, The one who says he abides in him halt himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. How did he walk? He walked in forgiveness. That's why Ephesians 4.32 says we're to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. What did Jesus say on the cross about the very ones who had driven the nails through his hands and feet, who'd spit on him, who had mocked him, scourged him, and pounded a crown of thorns into his head? He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And therein is the model for us. The severity of any offense toward us cannot match that. None of us have endured what Christ endured, and he forgave us all. He set the pattern, the example, the model. We're to forgive one another because it is the character of righteousness to do so, and second, because it is following the example of Christ. Third, we are to forgive one another because it expresses the highest virtue of man. It expresses the highest virtue of man. Man most manifest the majesty of his creation in the image of God when he expresses forgiveness. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. The highest display of virtue in a person is when he or she overlooks a transgression. Fourth, we forgive one another because... It frees the conscience, conscience from guilt. It frees the conscience from guilt. When there is a need to be forgiven and to forgive, there's guilt. Unforgiveness not only stands as a barrier to God's forgiveness, but it also interferes with peace of mind, with happiness, with satisfaction, and even physical problems. I think of Paul's instruction in 2 Corinthians uh, 2, about forgiving the man who had repented. And Paul says that we're to comfort him lest he be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. If you don't affirm your forgiveness of someone and comfort them, the ongoing guilt is expressed in excessive sorrow. Fifth, we should forgive one another because it delivers us from chastening. It delivers us from chastening. When there's an unforgiving spirit, there's sin. And when there's sin, there's chastening. Hebrews 12, 6, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And we've already talked about how that discipline can involve sickness and even death as illustrated by the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. Now those are all are important reasons why you should forgive one another. But there's one more that's more important than those five. We're to forgive one another because if we don't, we don't get forgiven either. If we don't, we don't get forgiven either. That's in our passage. Now that's a shocking and startling set of verses, verses 14 and 15. And many people don't understand these verses. But 
Nothing in the Christian life is more important than forgiveness. Our forgiveness of others and God's forgiveness of us. In the matter of forgiveness, God deals with us as we deal with others. We are to forgive others as freely and as graciously as God forgave us. Now, some people think, well, I'm certain I'm a believer and I confess my sins, but it seems like I still live a joyless Christian life. I don't feel like God has forgiven me. So let me propose this possibility to you. Perhaps you haven't truly forgiven someone else in this matter, and so you've short-circuited your own spiritual welfare. That's what Jesus is saying. Those aren't my words. This is Jesus talking, and we know that he knows. So begin to examine your life at that level. He deals with us as we deal with others. He measures us by the yardstick we use on others. Verse 12 does not say forgive us because we forgive others, but forgive us even as we've already forgiven others. That's the idea. He's going to deal with us as we deal with him, them. Uh, if we're unwilling to forgive and restore a relationship with others, he will not grant parental forgiveness to us and restore the fullness of our relationship with him. God deals with you the way you deal with others, and maybe the short circuit in your spiritual life is just that you have some people that you're holding bitter resentment or a grudge against, and it's constant. Even the Jews knew this. In the Talmud, the, the rabbinical commentary on the Old Testament, the rabbi said, quote, forgiveness of your, brother, of your neighbor's wrongdoing means that when you pray, your sins will be forgiven too, end quote. They understood that spiritual principle. It also, they, it also said, he who is indulgent toward others' faults will be mercifully dealt with by the supreme judge himself. So what about your life? Are you forgiving? Because if you're not, God's not going to forgive you and you're going to be going through the world with muddy feet. Judicially, you're justified. And the righteousness of God, of Christ, is imputed to you. But the joy is gone and the intimacy isn't there and the spiritual usefulness disappears. I mean, think about it. Who are we not to forgive other people? Who do we think we are? You remember Psalm 66, 18? If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If you're harboring something, he won't listen to you. James 2.13, judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. See, you put yourself in a chastening position. The Lord will really unload his chastening if you're not merciful to others. Don't come asking for forgiveness that you're not willing to forgive. You're not willing to give. Well, I'm looking at the clock. I'm close, but we're not going to make it. So I'm going to have to stop. Question. Yes. Correct. He talks about forgiving others. He never says you have to forgive yourself. That is a psychobabble from human wisdom. It has no truth in scripture at all. Sometimes people feel 
That's what I that's what I just said, I think. That that when we don't forgive somebody else, we're the guilt that we feel in our heart is because we haven't forgiven others as we should have. And we're still harboring that. We harbor it. It may not be something that we walk around every moment of the day thinking, I'm not gonna forgive that person, but it's there. We see that person, we hear their name is mentioned, and immediately in our heart there's something. Yeah, lack of forgiveness brings a lack of joy and a a feeling of guilt. Anything else? Other comments? Yes. So we can be, we're clean, like, you know, when we're his, we're clean, but then the dirty feet, the lack of forgiveness. Well, it can be. Can, yeah. Sin in our life. Our dirty feet is the sin in our life. And then, um, But that, but, but what happens with lack of forgiveness is it takes away the intimacy and our joy. Yeah, so because like, lack of forgiveness is a sin. So therefore, it's sin in our life that we're, if we're unrepentant about it, we're going to have a lack of joy. We're going to feel guilt over it. We've lost intimacy relationship with Christ. So when people say they're guilty, that can be. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. Mm-hmm. See if there's any wicked way in me. There's other times, there are other times when we confess our sins almost in a rote manner. Well, Lord, forgive me for doing this, that, and the other thing, this, that, that, blah, 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 blah. And we don't really search my heart, know my heart, see if there's any wicked way. We don't meditate on this enough to ask the Lord to purge us of our sin. Anything else? I hope it was as difficult a lesson for you as it was for me. <laughs> it was a very good lesson. So, okay. Terry, would you close us with prayer, sir? Father God in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord God, there is none like you. You created us and everything else. We praise your holy name for the gift of salvation that came through your son the lord jesus christ and we thank you for that daily forgiveness that you provide to us to restore our fellowship with you lord we pray that you will help us each day to live for you and honor you in all that we do and say and that uh, 